Well, good morning, church. Welcome to all you here who are live at South Portland, those who are watching online right now. Um, I want to start off just by giving a really quick announcement to remind you guys that in a couple weeks on August 1st is our Faith Promise Sunday event, and we're going to be having um, a really awesome guest speaker, somebody who was a really important person in my life and whose family was a very important person in, in my life, and that's um, General Superintendent Emeritus Dr. Jerry Porter and his wife, Tony, are going to be coming as well. Um, and I wanted to let you know that Faith Promise, if you don't know what that is, really it's a, about a, a love offering, a pledge to God above and beyond our normal giving um, to really impact missions in the world. And so if, if you'd like to, to support that, we, we're asking you over the next couple of weeks to really pray about what God might be saying for you to give, whether it's a, a one-time gift, whether it's a, a monthly pledge, whatever it might be. And those cards for Faith Promise should be found um, in the pews in front of you. I think we also have some in the back um, in the lobby as well. And then after our Faith Promise Sunday event, we're going to be having our all-church cookout, which we're really looking forward to. We're going to have great food, fellowship, moon bounces, and obstacles courses and things like that uh, for the kids. And Pastor Nancy wanted me to remind you that we're also going to be doing a pie, the, the pastor event that's going to be happening and that all, all the funds for that are going to go towards student ministry. Is that right, Pastor Nancy? So everyone should put lots of money in Pastor TJ's box, our student pastor. I say that correct? Okay, just, just making sure. Just making sure I said that right. So, so be sure to, uh, to plan that on your calendar for August 1st. Well, welcome to church. If it's your first time here or first time uh, back in a while, uh, I'm Pastor AJ, and we're in the middle of this summer series called Formed, where we've been discovering that followers of Jesus um, just don't happen by accident. No, they're formed. It, it, it's not like poof. And then they just magically appear. No, mature followers of Jesus don't happen by magic. They're formed. They're constantly growing. They're constantly stretching themselves and getting out of their comfort zone and taking next steps in their walk, in their relationship with God. And in week one, Pastor Amanda, our, our preschool pastor and the director of our, our Lighthouse Daycare, she, she talked with us about the power of regular time with God and that how that can lead to a deeper relationship with him through spiritual disciplines. And then last week, Pastor Nancy, she shared um, this incredible story of, of this Pharisee named Saul who was transformed at the hands of God into the Apostle Paul. And she challenged all of us to be looking for people in our lives to touch and to impact for Jesus. And it was a very powerful message. And so when as a staff a few months ago, we started talking about the idea for this series, I, I started thinking about what God might want me to share with all of you guys. And, and the topic that kept coming to mind was a topic that's really a passion of mine, and it's the topic of growth and discipleship and leadership, what it takes to really become a leader for God, a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And I think in this time in history, I mean, we're now coming out of a, a global pandemic and with the divisive political climate in our, nature, in our, in our nation right now where, where it seems like all that you hear is anger and demonizing people who have different views from you and wanting to cancel them. And, and it's just a crazy, you know, volatile climate. I think in that climate, so many people are asking the question, where have all the good leaders gone? 
And how am I supposed to respond to everything that's happening in the world, in our nation, and, and to people around me? How do I respond to them as a follower of Jesus? And so I believe this topic has never been more important. Now, my training, my educational background is this. I'm a graduate of the University of Maryland in psychology. Um, I did some graduate work there in human development. Then I completed my master's degree in clinical pastoral counseling at Loyola University in Baltimore. And now I'm, I'm working to finish up my doctorate in organizational leadership at Indiana Wesleyan University. But I'll be the first to tell you that I don't consider myself an expert in the topics of discipleship and leadership, not by a long shot. But the amazing thing is the Bible has some incredible incredible wisdom on these topics of leadership and discipleship. Just incredible practical things on how we can live our lives and how we can grow as followers of Jesus. And so my hope in our time together, and again, um, a little bit later in the series, because as I was working on this message, it was just too much stuff to put into one message. So I'll finish this one up actually in a couple of weeks. Um, but, but my hope and my goal is that you would be encouraged and, and that you would get some practical tools through this series on how you can work to grow and be formed into a leader and a follower of Jesus Christ. And whether you've ever considered yourself a leader or not, I'm here to tell you this morning that that's really how God views you. He views you as a leader for him. And that's why we say here all the time that we don't want people who just come here and go to church. We want the people of this church to realize that they are the church, that you are the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. And I believe that if we can learn to love people the way that scripture teaches, that things would be better, <laughs> that our families would be better that the places we work at would be better, that the schools we go to would be better, our communities would be better, and ultimately, this world that we live in would be better. Now, one of the most practical teachings on this topic of discipleship presented in Scripture is given by the Apostle Paul, who Nancy talked about last week. I mean, Paul wrote much of the New Testament. He planted churches all around the Mediterranean rim. He was an incredible church planter. And every time he would start one of these churches and then leave to the next one, he, he didn't just completely abandon them. He would begin to write letters to them to support them and to encourage them and help them. And some of these early churches, if you read your Bible, they, they were a little bit jacked up. Like if, if you think you've had a crazy church experience in your life, you really should read Paul's letters to these churches because you will feel better about your crazy church experience, okay? I I'm serious. Like, it was Christians gone wild back then. Paul had to tell a guy to stop sleeping with his stepmom, okay? Paul had to tell church leaders to stop getting drunk while they were taking communion. That was the early church. It was like a Jerry Springer episode when it started out, okay? But in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, he begins to present this topic of discipleship, of what it means to be formed into a follower of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the gifts given to us by God for leadership, that we are all valuable leaders, incredibly important parts of God's mission on planet Earth, that we are a part of the body of Christ. It's incredible. And then likewise, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul again talks about being a leader 
and being a disciple, being a follower of Jesus. But sandwiched in the middle of those two passages, 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, we get 1 Corinthians 13. And this passage, it feels a little bit weird. It feels a little bit out of place. It's almost like Paul was saying, I'm writing on leadership. I'm writing on discipleship. Okay, let me pause for a second and hook some Christians up in the future who are going to get married with some verses for their wedding ceremony. It's a little bit strange, okay? But I don't think he meant to do that. I think 1 Corinthians 13 is actually the glue that holds 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 together. In, 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 at the end of chapter 12, Paul talks about being formed into a follower of Jesus, and he says, now I will show you. I'm going to get really practical. Now I'm going to show you the most excellent way. And then he says this to start 1 Corinthians 13. He says that love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. See, Paul is trying to teach us that being formed into a follower of Jesus and a leader for God boils down really to one word, love. In fact, Jesus said this in, in John 13, 35, he said this amazing statement. He said, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That amazingly, amazingly, the key, the first step to becoming a formed follower of Jesus is not how much Bible you can quote. It's not how smart you are at knowing the Greek or the Hebrew. That the first step is not about becoming more religious and following a bunch of rules. No, the very first step to becoming formed into a follower of Jesus is connecting to this one little and yet powerful word, love. And this is why our very first core value as a church is this, that loved people love people, that loved people love people. And in this passage, Paul starts to point out what love really looks like in the life of a mature, formed follower of Jesus. See, this is what Paul is teaching, and, and this is really our, our bottom line for today. This is what I'm going to be talking about with you guys today and then again at the end of this series, is that followers of Jesus are formed through love. So for the rest of our time today, I want to start to unpack this 1 Corinthians passage and explore what it says in regards to the topic of being formed into a follower of Jesus through this lens of love. And again, I'm not claiming this morning to be an expert on any of this. Just like the rest of you guys, I am on a journey of grace. But these are things that I'm learning about and that I'm trying to work on and start to apply in my own life. So you guys ready to go? If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Number one, Followers of Jesus are patient and kind. Followers of Jesus are patient and kind. The love passage begins by stating that love is patient and love is kind. One of the places in life that I really struggle with patience and kindness is in my car. Does anybody feel me on that? Show of hands. All right, awesome. 
You guys, you guys get me. Um, and here's the thing with driving. All it really takes is one crazy person on the road to ruin it for the rest of us, right? One person who doesn't know how to merge into traffic coming off an exit ramp or how to use their turn signal. And so let me just ask a question to you guys this morning. Um, I just want to ask you if, if you do this. If you do this, just you know, raise your hand and acknowledge how dysfunctional you and I both are, okay? Here we go. If I'm in bad traffic and there are two or more lanes on the road, I will pick a lane, but I will mentally hold my place in the other lane. And if the other lane starts going faster than the lane that I'm in, I start to get very, very angry and I'm a wreck for the rest of my car ride. Any of you like me, a few, yes, few of you dysfunctional individuals like me, thank you for your honesty this morning. That's right. And then as I start to get angry in a vehicle, sometimes I can start to drive more aggressively. And then I try to catch up to that spot, and then other people on the road start to get frustrated with me, and they start to, you know, raise a hand or raise a finger at me, and my kids start asking what's going on, and I tell them, it's okay, kids, the people are just saying that your daddy's number one. But then I think about ramming those people off the road and, and wish that I had various weapons, you know, that I could pull out in my vehicle, you know, and it's a vicious cycle. Don't judge me. I'm not perfect. But if we're going to live out love, we need to learn to work on patience and kindness. Now, in Scripture, if anyone understood the value of patience, it was David. Because David was the youngest of the eight sons of Jesse. And his job was to be out in the field tending and taking care of the sheep. And, and you may remember the story that the prophet Samuel one day shows up at Jesse's house because he has heard from God that the next king of Israel is going to be one of Jesse's sons. And so Jesse presents all his sons to Samuel to see if they were the one, except, except for little David. They had forgotten all about him. He was out in the fields. But that day, David, very, very young David, he was probably a preteen most likely, David is anointed as the future king of Israel. But guess what? He, he didn't instantly become king. No, in fact, he actually doesn't become king until he's like in his 30s. And during that time, David is a very patient leader. King Saul, on the other hand, who was king during that time, is a very impatient leader. And his impatience is one of the reasons why he lost his power and he lost his leadership. Uh, one of the most interesting stories in the Bible that, that rarely gets preached on because it's kind of uncomfortable is when Saul realizes that David kind of has a crush on his daughter and wants to marry her. And Saul is so, so jealous of David and he so badly wants to get rid of him and have him killed that he gives David a suicide mission. He gives him this most dangerous and bizarre task in order to earn the hand of his daughter in marriage. And seeing David's response to Saul's request really gives us a window into David's heart and David's character. Saul told David, all I want for the hand of my daughter, David, is the foreskins of a hundred Philistines. Now I wanna pause for a second. Can we all agree this morning that's a little bit gross, right? And if you don't know what that is, please don't Google it. That will be disastrous, okay? Instead, at the end of service, ask Pastor TJ. He'd be happy to unpack that for you, okay? 
But look at David's response to this in 1 Samuel 18, verses 26 and 27. When the attendants told David these things, he was what, church? Are you kidding me? (laughs) He was pleased? David took his men with him, and he went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out the full number. I would not have wanted to have been there for that. They counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. That may have been the worst job ever given to anyone in the history of planet Earth, okay? And it says David was pleased. The next time you think your job stinks... Remember David. It might give you a little bit new perspective on the fact, okay? So what does David do? He doesn't just go get 100 for Saul. He goes and he gets 200. He said, oh, you want 100, King Saul? I'll double that. And he took a really bad situation and he made it better. If you want to be a great follower for God, are you going to complain and demand and be impatient Or are you going to lead with patience and humility? Because if you can't be trusted with what's in front of you right now, how can you be trusted with what's going to come next? Which leads to point number two. Followers of Jesus do not envy. Followers of Jesus do not envy. Um, I was born in Washington, D.C. I'm a child of the 80s. And so when I started getting interested in baseball as a little kid, we had no team in DC, but a little ways up the road, about 30 minutes north, there was this team in Baltimore called the Orioles. And they had this shortstop. You may have heard of him. His name was Cal Ripken Jr. And so the Orioles became my team. Now, as a true diehard Orioles fan, you had to understand one thing you rooted for the Orioles, and you also rooted for anybody who was playing against the New York Yankees. Okay? Like I grew up hating the New York Yankees. And there was one big reason why I hated the Yankees. They won more than us, okay? It was called envy. Like, I wish that we had all the world championships that the evil empire had. It's envy, and we all wrestle with it. A couple years ago, um, I got a new car. It was actually a, a used car, but it was only a couple years old, and I was really excited about it. Had low miles on it, looked great. I loved my car until a buddy of mine got a brand new car. And I rode in it with him. And it had a certain smell. It's that new car smell. Have you ever smelled that new car smell? And, and my car didn't have that smell. My car smelled like dirty children. <laughs> and I went from loving my car to hating my car and hating his car. And I'm ashamed to say it, but I may have prayed that night, dear God, Cars get stolen every day. Why not his, right? I experienced envy. So let's look at two things when it comes to the topic of envy. Number one is this, no one wins the comparison game. When it comes to envy, no one wins the comparison game. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Looking at social media, for example, have you ever noticed that people usually put their best face on social media? So so you got this picture of this family, right? And there's a mom and a dad, and 2.5 kids, and a dog, never a cat, because that would ruin the picture, usually a dog, right? And they're all smiling and super happy, and it looks like the perfect family, and that's their profile pic. What they didn't put up 
was a picture of what happened 30 seconds earlier when the dog pooped on the carpet and the kids were screaming and lives were being threatened to take the photograph, right? And so what we have in our culture today is people constantly putting out this imaginary or ideal self out into the world. And then we look at the highlight reels of other people and we start to feel horrible about ourselves. But see, the, the only thing we should really be comparing ourselves to is our calling that God has given for our lives. If we compare ourselves to our calling instead of other people, that's when we start to truly win. No one wins the comparison game. Paul said it like this in his letter to the Galatians church in Galatians 6.4. He gives us this powerful truth. He says, pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself to anybody else. I believe that verse right there this morning could set some of us free. Pay careful attention to your own work. And see, this is another trap that King Saul fell into. That, that diverted him from living a life of love. And it derailed him from being formed into the person that God wanted him to be. Check out this passage in 1 Samuel 18 because it's so powerful and it, it conveys this truth. It says, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, this is after David had killed the giant Goliath and they, the Israelites had this huge victory over the Philistine army. As they were coming home from this, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul and the army as they're returning home. And they were singing and dancing with joy with tambourines and cymbals. They were having a party out in the streets. And they sang this. This is what they sang. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Now, if you're King Saul... That's not the song you want playing on your iTunes top 10 list, right? Check this out. I just want to show you something interesting. Next verse, verse 8. This made Saul very what? Angry, right? He's like, what's this? He thought they have credited David with tens of thousands, but me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their new king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Let me ask you a question. What if when Saul had heard them singing that song, instead of feeling insecure about it and thinking David's better than me, they like David more than me, let me destroy him. What if he instead had embraced David and he had said, hey, David, guess what? We killed 11,000. Together, you and me, we killed 11,000. What if he had been secure enough in himself to acknowledge that there was someone coming up behind him who was on the same team as him and was successful. That reaction might have changed Saul's legacy. Number two, great love celebrates the successes of others. Great love celebrates the successes of others. Um, every year, our denomination um, would do like a leadership conference, and they would invite various leaders to come and speak on different topics of ministry. And a few years ago, I learned that my wife, Julie, who's also a pastor, was asked to speak on the topic of strengths and giftings, which is a passion of hers. But guess what? Nobody in the denomination asked me to speak. And I'm just gonna confess this morning that for a split second, 
I was a little bit annoyed. But then I had a decision to make. If I didn't celebrate Julie's success, I was going to fall into the trap of becoming envious. So guess what I did? I told her how proud I was of her. I celebrated her. I said, let me take some things off your plate. I took over some responsibilities with the kids in the weeks leading up to the event so that she could prepare her message and have time for that. Why? Because I love her, and I didn't want envy to get into my heart. Let me give you one more example. Um, I frequently, I frequently enjoy having other people come up on this platform and communicate to you guys. The reason is because I want you to be able to hear different people and different voices. And we have some great communicators at our church. I mean, I never have to worry when I'm away because our executive pastor, Pastor Nancy, and our other staff pastors, like our student pastor, Pastor TJ, our, our preschool pastor, the director of our daycare, Pastor Amanda, they, they hit it out of the ballpark whenever they're up here to speak. And oftentimes, I'll come back from vacation or a trip, and people will, will write me. They'll text me or they'll message me on Facebook, and they'll say, when you were away last week, Pastor, it was one of the best messages that we have ever heard. <laughs> it impacted my life so much. Pastor Nancy is my favorite. Someone told me that last week, okay? And it was my mother. That hurt a little bit. <laughs> But, but many people would tell me how great the service had been. And guess what? I don't, I don't interrupt them. I, I don't be like, um, well, you know, I'm, I'm the lead pastor of that church. Nothing would happen around there without me. I don't do that. I celebrate it. I even talk with our staff in staff meetings, and I'm like, we need to give you guys more opportunities to preach on Sunday. You did awesome. Because if I don't celebrate the success of others, eventually I'm going to become envious. And I'm going to want to tear them down like Saul tried to do with David. That's why I love our, our worship leader, Pastor Jim. Um, I, I think he does an amazing job up here. And he's constantly looking for people to join and be part of the team. I mean, he's talking to you guys about the choir right now. And he's always looking for people to, to use their talents and giftings for God. And the reason is because it's not about him. That's not his focus. Great love formed followers of Jesus. They don't envy and they celebrate others. Number three, followers of Jesus are not boastful. Followers of Jesus are not boastful. In ministry and in life, you're always going to meet people who try to one-up something you say. For example, you start talking about the 5K you ran last week and they'll tell you about the marathon they ran. You talk about your great Sunday at the beach at Kettle Cove, and they'll tell you about their cruise to the Caribbean. They're called one-uppers. And some people are notorious for it, and even pastors. Sometimes when us pastors um, gather together, you know, at a conference or at a meeting, um, sometimes you'll, we share stories of things we've experienced in ministry. We keep the names confidential, but we share crazy experiences. And once I, I heard the craziest one-upper story ever, Pastors were sharing different stories about crazy things that happened. And one pastor said, hey, I've got a story. We had a new student who showed up one time in youth ministry and who was acting really nervous when she got there. And after youth group was over, she, she told her small group leader that she really needed to sit down and talk with somebody, that there's some stuff going on in her life. 
And so the small group leader took the student to the youth pastor, and the three of them sat down together, and she started to cry. And she was like, I don't know if I can share this. I haven't been able to share this with anyone. I don't think I can do this. And they tried to comfort her, and they said, look, we love you. I mean, this is a safe place. This youth group is a safe place. There is nothing that you can share with us that will shock us. We work with teenagers. Nothing you can say. And so finally the girl was like, okay, okay, okay. I eat people. And the student pastor said, come again? Because that's something I actually have never heard of before. Can you unpack that a little? And it turned out the girl began to tell this story that the family she was in was, was part of a cult that practiced cannibalism. And when I heard that story, I was like, yeah, dang, we don't have that in our church. <laughs> we got some people with alcohol and porn issues, but no cannibals in my church. But see, if we're not careful as followers of Jesus, we can easily become one-uppers, and we can tend to boast. So there are a couple things that we can learn to help us avoid falling into this trap of becoming boastful. Number one, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget where you came from. If you're here today and you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, how do you stay humble? How do you keep yourself grounded? For me, it's easy. I simply never forget where I came from. See, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And, and I remember my life before I knew Jesus where I was confused and struggled with fear and loneliness and sin and shame. Like, I remember that. And I remember God rescuing me. I remember God forgiving me and changing my life. I remember him teaching me that I didn't need to be afraid, that I didn't even need to be afraid of death because I was never alone, because he was always with me. And see, when you realize the difference that Jesus has made in your own life, humility isn't such a problem. It's when you think that you've produced your own success that's when you fall into that trap. If you never forget where you came from, you won't lose sight of where you're going. Number two, great leaders don't inform, they perform. They don't inform, they perform. Boasting is often the result of insecurity. But great leaders don't inform, they perform. They don't have to boast. This is why in church world, I'm often very cautious of people who come up to me to tell me how good they are at doing something. If you're really good at doing something, you don't need to boast about it. For example, does Tom Brady need to tell people he's good at football? No, you just watch him in the last two minutes of a game and you know he's good. We have leaders here on our Life Essentials team, our Compassionate Ministry team, like Zahira and Nikomi and Dee and Ellen and Jean, they don't have to tell me they're gifted at caring for people. You know how I know that they're gifted in care? They're always serving people. They're helping them find clothing. They're giving them food. They're having a conversation with someone or praying with someone in a hallway or going to visit someone. That's how they know. That's how I know that they're gifted when it comes to care. Paul talks about this in Philippians 2. He says this, he says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. I think Christians could change the world if we just read the Gospels 
and looked at how Jesus related to people and just copied that. He was compassionate and humble. If we started acting like that in our homes, in our places of work, at our schools, it would be amazing. It would change the culture. It would change the world. Because people couldn't resist Jesus. And they can't resist people who truly, truly emulate him. And see, we often have a wrong view of holiness and what it means to live like Jesus. We think holy people are the people who read their Bible for three hours a day and memorize tons and tons of scripture. We think those people are the spiritual giants. But in Jesus' day, those people were called the Pharisees. And they're the ones who nailed him to the cross. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that spiritual disciplines aren't important. They are important. As Pastor Amanda said, they'll help you grow deeper in your relationship with God. But what I'm saying is that a true mark of a follower of Jesus, a formed follower of Jesus, begins with love. Loving God and loving others. Which leads to the last point I'm going to cover this morning. Number four, followers of Jesus are not proud. Followers of Jesus are not proud. Uh, in my family, one of the responsibilities that I have is to do the grocery shopping. That's, that's one of the regular things that I do. Um, but as you guys know, I, I have some very competitive tendencies, and those follow me in the grocery store. I can get in trouble at times. Just like when driving, if I get in a line at the grocery store, I'm comparing where I would have been in all the other lines, okay, and I get mad at myself. The other thing I've often struggled with is unloading the groceries at home. I will do anything humanly possible to try to unload all the groceries in one trip, okay? Even if it makes my life more difficult. I remember on one particular occasion when I loaded up all the groceries and I was balancing a gallon of milk on a pinky and I had a bunch of boxes with a carton of eggs on top and I had a bag of sugar and a bag of flour under my other arm. And I start making my way to the house. And as I'm approaching the front door, one of my beautiful daughters comes running out and says, Daddy, do you need some help? And I was like, no, no, I got this. Dad's got this. I didn't take three more steps before that gallon of milk slipped off of my pinky, hit the ground, and exploded. And as a tidal wave of milk is coming at my feet, I jump back and the eggs fall off the top and land onto it. And then the sugar and the flour slip out from under my arm and the bags explode right there in front of me. And my daughter was like, Daddy, are you okay? And I was like, yes, baby, Daddy's fine. I'm just baking a cake on the sidewalk. <laughs> but in that moment, I realized that if I had accepted some help, I mean, that wouldn't have happened but I didn't accept help because of pride. And see, I, I think the church in America also struggles with this. Some people ask if time travel will ever be possible. I believe we already have time travel. If you walk into most churches in America, you can literally step back in time 50 years. That's time travel. You can see the way church was when your grandparents attended in their 20s. Why? Because nothing has changed. And then we wonder why most churches in America have plateaued or are on the decline. It's pride. We don't like change. We don't like to be uncomfortable. We like the things the way we're used to, even if that means we're not going to be obedient and follow Jesus to reach those 
who desperately need him in this world. I think that's the epitome of selfishness and pride. God calls us to be willing to fight and bleed for our mission and for our vision. But he also calls us to be willing to be flexible and get uncomfortable, to stretch out of our comfort zone and change our methods to accomplish his great commission to love and reach those who are far from God. I praise God for the saints of this church, for the many seniors in this church who have been willing to be a little bit uncomfortable and adjust their preferences when it comes to style of music or the use of technology because they see the greater purpose of our church to reach our community and to reach our world for Jesus Christ. Going back to, to Saul and David, Saul becomes insane in his jealousy towards David. And he tries to kill him on multiple occasions. And can we all agree this morning that murder is wrong? Right? We would all agree with that. Saul tried to kill David on multiple occasions, but look at what pride can make you do. Check out 1 Samuel 20, verse 24 to 26. Last verse we're going to look at today. So David hid in the field. Why? Because he knew Saul was trying to kill him. And when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat, and he sat in his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan, his son. But David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely David is unclean. Here's a guy who's planning murder, who literally has murder in his heart, and he's thinking about how sinful and unclean David is. That's believing you're the holiest person in the room. That's believing you know all the answers. That's pride. Last point today, and then we'll finish this 1 Corinthians passage in a few weeks as we end this series. Here's what I believe about followers of Jesus when it comes to pride. I believe this. I think followers of Jesus should be first. That's what I believe. I believe that we should be the first at admitting our mistakes and the first at asking for forgiveness. That's what I believe. That's how you can live out love and start to have victory over pride in your life, to be the first to admit your mistakes and to be the first to ask for forgiveness. Followers of Jesus embody love, and love is patient and kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Loved people love people. And the greatest act of spiritual discipline that you can begin to live out in your life is love. Followers of Jesus are formed through love. Loved people love people. Can we pray together with heads bowed, eyes closed? Heavenly Father, love. It's such a simple little word, and yet it can be so hard to really live it out. God, thank you for the Apostle Paul and his incredible writing that has been passed down through time over 2,000 years to reach us today. Thank you for his teaching on, on what it means to be a disciple, a fully formed follower of Jesus. God, help us, help us to, to begin to truly apply this wisdom into our lives.
Again, we don't want to be people who just show up in church, hear a message, and walk away unchanged. God, we want to be people who take that truth, apply it into our lives, so we can take next steps to the greater things and the greater plans that you have for us. God, help us to love those around us. Because again, love is patient and kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Loved people love people. And that's who we want to be, Lord. Thank you for loving us first, God. Thank you for, for sending Jesus. Help us as your followers to live out love to everyone we touch in our lives. We pray this today in your son's name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand together? Let's continue to sing and celebrate what God is doing.
wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard this morning. But God, that you would also give us courage to take action, to start to apply your truth into our lives so that we can be changed, so that we can be people who are continuing to take next steps and grow into the people you want us to be. Father, for some of us here who are followers of Jesus, it's about taking love and applying it into our lives, which, which sometimes can be harder than we think. But for us to remember that love is patient and kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. God, help us to remember these things so that we can start to be examples of love because loved people love people. For those of us here who are maybe still seeking and searching and, and, and we don't really know where we stand right now in our relationship with God. Father, I just pray in powerful, powerful ways in the days and weeks ahead, Lord God, that you would speak to them, that you would reveal yourself to them in so many ways through interactions with maybe people from this church, people who love them. They would realize that you are the God who made them, who created them, and who loves them to the core. That you love them so much that you are willing to send your son to die for them, to pay the price for all of their wrongs so that they could be made right and that they could have a personal relationship with you, the God who invites them to call you father, daddy, the perfect parent that maybe we wished we had and that you call us your sons and daughters. God, we love you. Thank you for being a God like that. God, again, I pray that you would help us to gain whatever truth we can from what we've heard and that we would be changed because of it, that we would be formed into the people you want us to be. And we pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. I hope you have an awesome week. And I hope you guys are back next Sunday as we continue in part four of Ford.
You. Want.